Guys, good morning. Good to see you today. And uh, hey, you know, we have so many things that are happening here at Fellowship of Faith beginning today. Rock Children's Ministry began today at 9 o'clock. And Boulder Student Ministry began today at 9 o'clock. And they're coming back because they can't get enough at 4.30 and 7 tonight. Guys, we had this like this amazing women's Bible study kick off at 9 o'clock today. We've got a study that's kicking off right now. Now that's going on, not to mention discipleship groups that are starting this week, and Alpha that's beginning this Wednesday, and it just kind of keeps heaping up. And I want to ask you a favor this morning, and we did it at nine, and it kind of worked for the kids, but, but I need your help as well. See, every given Sunday at 1030, there's a pocket of kids that hang out back in the Stepping Stones room, and there's a group of what we call like coffee house vagrants that just kind of come up at tables and, and, and do their thing out there. And what I want you to do is cheer uproariously for 30 seconds, which is an eternity of time when you're cheering, all right? I want you to cheer for 30 seconds so they out there wonder what the heck is going on in this room, all right? Can you help me with this? Would you do this? Ready? Okay, I'm going to do this in three. Here we go. Ready? In three Two, one. Now, if anyone comes in late or wonders what's going on, you cannot tell them, all right? All right, you got to keep this one to yourself, guys. So glad that you're here. And, you know, we're kicking something else off today as well. All this school year, we are looking at the question, why? It is life's most basic question. The why questions that people ask God. We're also going to be looking at the why questions that God asks people over 500 times in the Bible. You see people either wrestling with the question why, crying out to God or others with the question why, or God doing the same in return, asking his people why. And maybe you ask some of the same questions yourself. And what my hope is, our hope here at FOF for the year is that by looking at some of these why questions, they somehow rub up against your own why questions. And that our perspectives start to get broadened. We start to see what God might have to say to some of these why questions that, that people have been asking from the beginning and stand as the most really basic things we struggle with in life. And somehow, in some way, get a deeper understanding of how God speaks into these and see what he can do in our life as he speaks them. And really, my hope is that our lives are just better as a result. And at the center of Christianity is maybe the most important why question of all. From God's perspective, the question of why Jesus died. Now, if you're a Christian or you grew up with some kind of church background, you probably know the, 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 the knee-jerk 
answer to this question, well, Jesus died for my sins. But see, what I want to do these next few weeks with you is not look at the theological, philosophical reason why Jesus died. I want to share with you what actually happened. I mean, what went down in 30 AD that got Jesus strung up? What brought him there? And here's why. Because I found that until I understand what actually happened, the reality of what took place outside those walls of Jerusalem in 30 AD, I'm not able to really grasp or appreciate the significance of why Jesus died for me. And so my hope these next few weeks is is that we peel back the history of what took place. You get a better perspective into what it means, into the answer of why Jesus died as well. Now, each of these next few weeks, we're going to begin by looking at a portion of the account in the New Testament of what happened to Jesus and those final couple of days culminating in his crucifixion. And the one that I'm going to share with you today comes from this, this gospel writer. His name is Matthew. He was one of these early followers of Jesus. And jumping into the moment of Jesus' trial right before his crucifixion, this is what he says. He says, early in the morning, this is the morning of Good Friday, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to a decision to put Jesus to death. So they bound him, and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now it says, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes. Yeah. It's as you say, Jesus replied. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him again, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not to a single charge, to the great amazement of the Roman governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast, this is Passover, at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, the one called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders, they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, 
Who is called Christ, Pilate asked, and they answered in those words that have become proverbial, that two-word phrase that has echoed down through today. Crucify him! Why? What crime has, has this man committed, asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, then let his blood be on us and on our children. And so he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now I have a theory. And my theory is this. You can wash your hands all you want, and it does not absolve you of guilt. You can be warned all you want by your wife and be all emotionally consternated inside. It does not absolve you of guilt. For whatever other parties had a role to play in the crucifixion of Jesus, this much can be said. Pilate put him there. The Romans killed Jesus. Because Rome was in charge, Pilate had the responsibility. And when you are in charge and you have the responsibility... What goes down on your watch, at least in part, sticks to you. For whatever other parties had a role to play, the Romans killed Jesus. And the Romans were nasty. The Romans were nasty rulers. At the time of Jesus, Rome Rome governed an empire that stretched all the way from the south half of Great Britain into what we know as Israel and Syria and Jordan today. Thousands of miles cutting across Europe, cutting across North Africa with the nation that we call Israel, with Palestine sitting at the far eastern Edge. And for Rome, this backwater little edge, this frontier country of their emperor, empire, it was strategically important, just like the Middle East is strategically important today. But for Rome, it was for different reasons. Today we know it has a strategic importance not only for the oil reserves, but keeping a footprint in, in the midst of terror states. But in Rome's day, the strategic importance was different. And it was about grain. Because see, there's over a million people in the city of Rome, not counting the empire itself. You ever try to feed a million people? Rome couldn't grow it. And so they were dependent on Egypt for their primary source of grain. So how do we keep Egypt safe? We set up a buffer state 
called Israel to keep the Parthians and all these other enemies from the east at bay. And so the city of Rome, in the middle of Italy, in the middle of their empire, is controlling a subjugated people that goes thousands of miles in either direction. And it begs the question, how do you keep control? How do you keep order of subjugated states? Well, Rome's way was this. Shock and awe, terror, and fear. And for Rome, the primary instrument to strike fear into the hearts of the subjugated people was the cross. Now, you know, today, we wear crosses as jewelry, right? We, 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 we make them gold and we adorn them with diamonds or we knit them and crochet them like grandma made it, right? And we decorate our kids' rooms with crosses, I embraced my feminine side and played on Pinterest this week. And uh, I, I came across this picture that I want to show you. Now I'm dating myself by this. But I remember when I was little, these were popular. And I even had something very similar in my room. You get this, this nice, simple mahogany, you know, nicely stained and shellacked cross. And here's a nice little innocent boy, pure and praying, and isn't he sweet and adorable, bending down, and oh, it's our little Henry, right? Or, or it would be the picture of the little girl, God bless Henry, and we hang it in our kids' walls. Hop on Pinterest. Embrace your feminine side, males, all right? Hop on Pinterest, and you, you know, you'll find crosses that have bunnies and goats and giraffes and elephants all adorning on them and, and patterns that you can paint your kids' rooms in with, with Jesus' crosses and isn't it fun and isn't it sweet because for us, the cross has become something of, of meaning, of hope, of innocence, of sentimentality. But you got to understand what this would be like in the first century world. Decorating your kids' room with crosses would be the equivalent of decorating your kids' rooms with severed heads and pictures of violent crime scenes. Because for ancient Rome, the cross was something of horror that no person would ever want to see, and once they did, would never be able to get out of their mind. And what I want to do is contrast what I think becomes our picture of the cross with something a little bit more realistic to Jesus' day. Because the cross in Jesus' world was the thing of nightmares and memories that you wish you could wash from your mind but would never be able to, visible and prominent in the lives of virtually every subjugated person. Nightmares and memories of people strung up naked, half alive and half dead, covered in blood, and flies, eaten by rats and vultures 
and crows while they're strung up alive and unable to do anything about it, crying out with desperate pleas or delusional from all of the shock that takes place with, with their relatives helpless and in despair, watching their loved one be butchered. And cruel people coming by, making fun of them and mocking them and spitting on them and throwing things on them with remains left to rot in the sun for days on end. It starts to change the way you want to decorate your children's room, doesn't it? For Rome, the cross was an instrument of horror and torture. And I came across a number of quotes that I'd like to share with you today. Quotes from, from Roman people in the first century, not Christians, commenting on this thing we call the cross from their own perspective. This one, named Cicero, will write it as the most cruel and terrifying penalty. Josephus will write, it's the most pitiable of deaths. Origen, a little bit later, would write this. It is the most shameful form of death. And Seneca describes it this way. He says it's a wasting away in pain, dying limb from limb, letting out his life drop by drop, fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. Elsewhere, Cicero would say this, that the word cross itself, even the very word, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his very thoughts, from his eyes, from his Ears, for it's not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but it's the liability to them, the risk, you know? The expectation, indeed, even the very mention of them is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man because the cross was the lowest form of capital punishment in Rome's day. It was saved for non-Romans, particularly slaves and rebels, especially those slaves who led rebellions, and for rebels to show them that they're little more than slaves. And guys, it was public. They would put these crosses along busy roads and at the entrance to cities. These are not executions happening in sanitized, sterile, controlled rooms in the back of maximum security prisons. This is before your eyes. And some Christians make the mistake of thinking that somehow death on a cross is unique to Jesus. Rome, they did this in droves. There's that old great classic historic movie, Spartacus, you know it? About a slave rebellion in Rome's day. And the movie, if you're not aware, is actually 
based on true events. When Rome finally crushed the actual Spartacan slave rebellion, they crucified over 6,000 people on the Appian Way, a major road going from Rome to the city in Italy called Capua, over 130 miles of lined-up people, and it was said that you couldn't go more than 40 yards without seeing another person being degraded and tortured at the hands of Rome. When Titus and Vespasian laid siege to Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD and overthrew the Jewish rebellion, according to ancient historians, they crucified so many people that they ran out of timber and deforested the land. Because if you lived as a subjugated person in the Roman Empire, this was a part of your life. A daily occurrence that you would see or hear or remember or dream that you wish you could wash from your mind. And it wasn't just the physical horrors because for Rome, the cross also carried political and social and even religious reasons as well. Politically, it was Rome's way of saying, we're in charge and you're not. Socially, it was Rome's way of saying, we are superior. You are inferior, we matter. You do not. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he has this sign printed above him in Greek and Aramaic and Latin that reads the king of the Jews, this was mockery by Rome. This is what we think of your king, your nation, your destiny. It's like Rome's way of saying this. You want to be high and lifted up? We'll raise you high and lift you up. And religiously, it was their way of saying that the goddess Roma and the son of a god named Caesar are far superior and more powerful than anything your local deities dare to challenge us with. And they nailed Jesus to it. This is what they did to him. There's this poem you can find in the New Testament. An ancient poem that, that, that Paul quotes describing the significance of what Jesus did. And the poem goes like this. He starts by going, you know, your attitudes should be the same as Christ Jesus. And then he quotes the poems and he says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on human form and the very nature of a servant and humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, 
even death on a cross. And then the poem goes on. And in the smack dab middle of this poem is the line I just said that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What is the point of the poem? That Jesus, who is highest, has gone to the lowest. Because the cross in his lifetime, in his world, and in his culture was the absolute lowest place that any person could ever dare to go. And it makes you wonder a little bit, doesn't it? How could people be so cruel? How can someone or a culture become so nasty as to do this to another human being. But you know what? Rome was hardened to it. They became callous to it, and I think it's a warning for us, the danger of how easily it is for us to harden ourselves against what is right and wrong and good and evil, how easy it is to callous ourselves and desensitize ourselves against the same kinds of issues in this world. But they were calloused and they were hard, so much so that they would even devise new ways of doing it. In Jesus' day, they would try to invent and discover new modes, new positions, new ways to hang people and leave people and set people up to prolong their agony to the nth degree. This is what Rome did to Jesus. This is how and why Jesus died. But, but before we get too eager here today to start pointing our fingers at Rome and throwing stones, I think we really need to do this. I think we need to pause for a moment and ask ourselves do I treat people with cruelty as well? Now, I've never been crucified. But there have certainly been people in my life who have set me up, sought my demise, intentionally went out of their way to try to harm me, and at times succeeded. Can you say the same? Likewise, I've never crucified anyone. But there's been times in my life that I have been both intentionally cruel and callously cruel to other human beings in such a way that brings regret to me today. Can you say the same? Share a story with you about this that I heard when I was at the seminary. It was from my um, homiletics prof. Homiletics is a fancy word they use at seminaries. It means preaching. Preaching prof. Taught us how to preach. And he recounted in a very vulnerable, just kind of raw, honest way about a time in his life when he found himself in that place 
See, in high school, there was this, this special needs kid. And he and his friends were merciless to him. They would laugh at him. They would make fun of him. They would joke about him behind his back. And then it kind of grew to doing it to his face. I don't think they ever beat him to a bloody pulp, but they would push him and they would threaten him and they would intimidate him and they would, you know, get him to jump and scare him and leave him on edge all the time. They would knock books out of his hand and push him around and get other people laughing and degradate this human being. Putting him down because it made them feel special or made them feel strong or made them feel powerful. And then, of course, high school people graduate. And past times in life and past times of our life start to become more and more of a faded memory. And you go to college and you go to career and you go into separate ways and people are forgotten. And through a series of events in this prof's life, he started to meet Jesus in a new way and that led him to seminary. And he did his four years there and He's done now. He's got his first call, you know, to his first church that he's going to serve. And and what's very typical in church world when a new pastor comes is it often starts like that first Sunday or first event, they call it like an installation service or something, where he comes and, you know, you bring out all the dignitaries and, and, and everyone puts on the white robes and the red stoles and the candles are blowing and the organ is wailing and people are weeping because they got red stoles and white robes and organs and candles that day. But he finds himself there, and it's, and it's a time full of hope and joy and, you know, and just expectation. And there's this 26, 27-year-old now. He sees him. There's that special needs kid that I'd forgotten about that I used to brutalize who is not a kid anymore. But he's now a man. And in that moment of realization, his past and all the regret and shame and horror and panic of what do I do now? There he is. Like, how do you hide from this? Does he recognize me? Does he seem, do I go talk to him? And all of the joy and all of the expectation and all of the focus of the day is completely gone as his entire state of being is tunnel visioned on that kid who is now a man and the past that comes with their relationship. And he describes it, then it happens. The kid, they tortured. So now a man turns and looks at him and there's no denying the glance. I know him, and he knows me, and he knows that I know him, and I know that he knows that I know him who knows me, right? What do you do in a moment like that? How do you respond? How do you react? How do you make up for the past? How do you make it right? How do you... And he starts walking his way. You know, not one of those saunter kind of meander things, but he sees him and starts walking towards him across the road. Do, do you run? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> do you hide? You're being installed here in five minutes. Comes to find out 
He's the custodian of the very church he's about to serve. And what do you say? And this kid who's now a man, he walks up to him, and there they are, and they're standing face to face, and everyone is unaware of what's going on, and he's got a reputation at stake, and there's all this stuff that's playing in your mind, and the guilt above all of what I did to this poor special needs kid who is now a man who's standing here eye to eye with me today. You know what that kid who became a man said? He looked him in the eye, and with full realization of the past between them, said, Pastor, we are so happy you're here. What does that do to you? How does your world get rocked if you are on the receiving end of that? And what brings a kid who became a man like that to utter words in the face of his torturer? And, and my prophet went on to describe how in that moment... Nothing else mattered as he experienced the most holy thing he had ever tasted in his life. That all of the trappings and all of the future and all that this ceremony meant was secondary to what he got to be on the receiving end of right there, tasting God's grace manifest in some palpable, tangible way. See, the Romans killed Jesus. And the Romans are nasty. But you know what? We are too. This picture I want to show you. A lot of you here have probably seen um, Mel Gibson's epic, The Passion of the Christ, which, which shows in graphic horror what the cross was in the first century AD. But I want to show you a still shot today. And it's kind of that, you know, iconic moment where they have Jesus stretched out. And it's that moment where they're actually about to literally crucify him. But see, Mel Gibson did something with this scene. And it's far less known than the event of Jesus being crucified. And what I want to show you next to it is another picture of the exact same scene, but panned out. So you see other things that are at play. See, what Mel Gibson insisted on when he shot this scene is that when that nail is driven through the hand of Jesus, it's got to be me. I have got to be the one who strikes that nail because I am the one who killed Jesus. Jesus died because the Romans put him there, but Jesus died for cruel people, the Romans 
and you and me. The Romans may have put him there, but we, each of us who have ever been cruel in our life, who have ever treated a human being with less than the full dignity and honor that God has made them to have, we drove that nail. We killed Jesus. And he did it. He did it for the Romans, and he did it for you and for me. Jesus died for the cruel, nasty, horrible people of this world, the cruel, nasty, horrible-minded people like you and I can be, and he took it. He said, bring it on me. I will take all of the cruelty. Bring it on me, I will take all of the hate. Bring it on me, I will take all of the callousness and contempt, and I will absorb it all. And in the process, disarmed the powers of hate and cruelty in this world, saying, I can take it. I can take it all. And though you kill me, you don't defeat me and shows them to be the impotent powers that they are. This is why Jesus died. He died because there were cruel, cruel, hateful people in this world who put him there. In the first century and today. And Jesus invites each one of us not to try and wash our hands of our past or our responsibilities, but to tell him we're sorry. <laughs> to admit to him what we've done or become. And let him absorb that as well. For you, for me. So as the band comes forward today, I want to invite you to rise. And I hope that somehow and in some way what happened translates into what Jesus did for you and me and why he died. And if through this you found yourself coming to terms with episodes of your own outright cruelty or your own episodes of hard-heartedness or callousness or contempt, of harm done to others in times of anger and harms done to others maliciously, to give it to him today to just pray and say, Jesus, I'm not going to wash my hands of it anymore. I know my cruelty. Take it from me today. Let's pray.
the Romans crucified you, Jesus. But we did too. Thank you. Thank you for not responding with retaliation and hate. Thank you for absorbing it all. All of their cruelty and all of ours. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for enduring all that took place. Thank you. Forgive us, God, today. Forgive us for things of our past. Forgive us for the things right now. Lord, we want to be free. Free of the weight of it. We want to be clean. Different. Hear us as we pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. In his mercy, God gave his son, Jesus, to die for you and for his sake, forgives you all of your sins. As a called and ordained servant of the word, I am charged with bringing you a message from him. He says, I forgive you. I forgive you all of it. All of it. Forgiven. On me.